Uh, If you haven't got a chance to turn to John 11, please do so because we've got a wonderful story before us, uh, one that we can read together. Uh, We'll have part one today, part two next week, and we'll see if we need a part three or not uh, to get through this story. Uh, It is a a familiar story, but I don't want to assume uh, that you know this story. Um, And so we'll walk through it line by line, considering um, from one perspective, the responses of the individual characters in the story uh, as they move from place to place. Both the characters and the geography help us to consider what the Apostle John is trying to communicate, but ultimately looking to Jesus' responses. And, and not just to his responses, but to who he is, um, that we might get the, the greatest truth uh, and the greatest impact out of this passage. Uh, Joy and I have been, uh, or we finished watching a short little series that she had seen uh, someone mention on, uh, online, on social media, and so we began watching this show uh, called The Blue Zones. And it is a... Uh, documentary of sorts um, uh, by this one man, Dan Butner, I believe, and he uh, was going around the world looking at these places where there are more centenarians, hundred hundred year olds, than in other places of the world, and they were called blue zones. And so he would go to these blue zones and do his own research to be able to determine what are the things that they're doing to help them live this long to get more hundred-year-olds than any other places on the earth. And, uh, you know, that didn't seem like my normal go-to show watching, but there was an excitement about me because as a kid, I remember watching uh, weatherman uh, Willard Scott on the NBC News, and Willard Scott, when he did the weather, he would bring or show the picture of these hundred-year-old people celebrating their birthday, and they'd put them on the front of the Smucker's jar. So I always remember this thinking, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be on that jar. I'm going to do it. So when I found out there were secrets to be able to do, to be able to live to be a hundred years old, I was kind of, you know, perked up, kind of interested in that. And, and you laugh, and I laugh, and yet we all do things that we think are going to help us live longer, live more healthy lives. And if you saw it once, you might think, oh, that's nothing, but then a couple more people say it, and then all of a sudden you think, oh, well, I need to do that. And there is so much time, so much focus put on um, trying to control uh, how many days we're going to live on this earth, how many years we're going to live on this earth. And while some of those things might be able to give us better days, uh, I don't think it's going to be able to change the amount of days uh, that we have on this earth. For the Lord himself uh, has numbered our days. Moses understood this in uh, Psalm 90, verse 12. Moses prays and even sings Uh, Lord, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Uh, uh, The psalmist says in Psalm 39, verse 4, O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. The psalmist and Moses knew that their days on the earth were, were short. They were numbered, in fact, that God has numbered them. And every day is written in his book. And we can do all that we want to be able to extend our life, to get to that hundred-year-old mark, to be a centenarian. But in the end, the Lord knew that in the beginning. Uh, and we don't need to be focusing so much on extending this life, but we need to be focused more on making sure we are prepared for facing death. Uh, To know that at the end of our days and our years here on this earth, that we will have eternal life with God. I hope and pray that not only this morning, but the rest of your days, you would spend more time thinking about what it means to have eternal life than thinking about what it means to extend your earthly life. 
And the Bible is not afraid of, of this topic. In fact, in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, there's no death. Uh, God created the world. He made Adam and Eve, made them in His image. They were living in communion and fellowship with Him and with one another. It was a beautiful thing. In Genesis 3, man and woman, Adam and Eve, rather than um, worshiping God with their life, sought to become like God and going their own way and eating of the fruit. And the result of that action, God said, was death. So Genesis 1 and 2, no death. If you fast forward all the way to the end of the book of Revelation, in the new heavens and the new earth, in eternal life, there's no death. But all the way in the rest of your Bible, from Genesis 3 all the way to Revelation 21, it's full of death. In fact, early on in the, um, the account of Genesis, when you get to the genealogy, we find out that not only did Cain kill Abel, uh, but Adam died, and then Seth died, and then it goes on and on and on and says, and he died, and he died, and he died. Um, the, God and the Bible are not uh, afraid of this topic of death. In fact, it's the reason God sent his one and only son uh, to live on this earth and to die on the cross and to rise from the dead so that we wouldn't have to stay in the, the state of sin and death, but could be forgiven of our sins, freed from the slavery of sin and death, and, and enjoy life, eternal life with, with God. Just like Adam experienced, the Bible says in the New Testament, that Ro in Romans 6.23, that the wages of sin is death. But it goes on and gives us the good news. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so I want us to consider death, sickness this morning, but in the context of resurrection and life. And I want you to be, be able to ask yourself, can you say like Paul said in Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Can you say that? Do you believe that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life? If so, you have great hope in this life, no matter how many years you, you live. And you have the opportunity to give hope to other people as they face sickness, as they face death physically here on this earth, but as they face potentially eternal death less, unless they repent of their own sins and believe in Him. And so, uh, whether you struggle with the idea of sickness and death, uh, even in the midst of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and, and those ideas of sin and death just weigh heavy on you, if, if you know others that are facing sickness and death, um, I, I pray that these truths would give you hope today and this week and in this month and these years to come that we would be encouraged by these things and have something to comfort others with as we ourselves are comforted this morning. The sentence I've got for you summarizing this, this sermon, this message is this. It's that even death will be used for God's glory in our belief through the resurrection. Even death, even sickness, even some of the worst things that you uh, could experience on earth, this side of the grave, can and will be used for God's glory and potentially our belief, and, but that's only accomplished through Jesus' death and His resurrection. John 11 sits on the heels of John 10 where Jesus uh, rebuked the Jews for not believing his words and not believing his works. In fact, he encouraged them, even if you can't believe my words, that I say that I'm the Son of God uh, and, and that all who are my sheep will follow me and will have life and go in and out and find pasture. Even if you can't believe my words, he says, just believe my works. 
uh, his signs and miracles that he had done up to that point that John intentionally includes in the Gospel of John so that his readers years later will believe. And so I think it's intentional by John and also under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to put John chapter 11 right here after Jesus has just said, if you don't believe my words, believe my works. And John includes uh, quite possibly the greatest earthly work, if you will, uh, the greatest earthly sign other than his own resurrection in John chapter 11 uh, so that his readers in the first century so that we now would, would see that his works prove his words, that he really is who he, he says that he is. And as I mentioned earlier, we'll look here at the different characters as they move from, from one place uh, to another, or in fact stay in one place and then move to another place. And we'll look at these characters' responses and attempt to learn from them, but ultimately trying to look at Jesus. So if you're taking notes, having written down that sentence, note this in the first three verses, that the sisters call out in death. In the midst of their brother's sickness and death, these sisters, Mary and Martha, call out to Jesus. Look in chapter 11, verse 1. John writes that now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and Martha, uh, Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair whose brother Lazarus was ill. Uh, John lets us in on this certain family, and we find out later that this is a near and dear family to Jesus. Uh, what we know of Jesus' family up to this point, his, his brothers and sisters in his home, is that they, they wanted nothing to do with him, that they, they uh, mocked him and, and things like that, and only later after the resurrection came to faith. And so, for Jesus, his, his followers, his disciples, and those who followed him were his family, much like uh, in Christianity, um, when, when certain people come to faith in Jesus, they're, they're abandoned by their family, and they're turned away, and so the church becomes their family, and this family was near and dear to Jesus. Uh, Jesus loved Lazarus uh, like a brother, uh, even weeps over him later in our story. And John tells us, kind of foreshadows in, in uh, chap verse 2, something that ha doesn't happen until John chapter 12, but he assumes that um, his church knew about the story of Mary anointing Jesus with ointment. Um, he assumes that, um, that readers have maybe read this once through and and are now coming back around to it, but at least for John's first readers, it was known to them. But that story doesn't happen until chapter 12. So like a good, you know, Tolkien insert right there, he's, you know, telling you about someone that doesn't even come into the story until later. Um, and he's trying to engage us in, in what's happening here, saying that there's more to come with this family. Even though this is um, some of the first that we're, that we're learning about, and we'll learn about them more and more. And it's these sisters of Lazarus in this family, family in Bethany, um, not far from Jerusalem, uh, that Lazarus was ill. And so the sisters, I think lovingly, uh, sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Now we can just look at the sisters' reaction at this point, and we don't know what was done for Lazarus up to this point. I don't want to assume uh, necessarily. Uh, I want to give them the benefit of the doubt and at least say that what they're doing here is, is what we ought to do as well when we face circumstances like this. I don't know if this was one of their first actions when their brother Lazarus was ill was go and get Jesus. I don't know if it was their last action. I know there's been many times in my own life where running and calling to Jesus was my last action in an act of desperate hope. Lord, please, everything I've done hasn't worked up to that point. And in those moments being convicted, that should have been the first thing I should have done. 
was to run to Jesus, call to Jesus, send for Jesus, ask others to, to intercede on my, back, my, my behalf to Jesus. Uh, and e- either way, we find out that, that that's what they do. And they send to Jesus because they believe that Jesus is able to heal. They are some of his closest followers. They have probably been near him when some of those signs and miracles have um, gone on in the past. They've heard other stories of healings and miracles of Jesus when he's been far from their home. They know that Jesus can, and, and, and like another man in the Gospels, uh, when he says, I know you can, I pray that you will. Uh, they're hoping to send to Jesus in, in hopes that he would, would come. The truth is, is that he didn't have to even come to be able to heal. He's already proven, John's made it clear, that he can heal from a distance. He doesn't even have to go from Bethany uh, to, to Jerusalem, uh, or from, from where he is to Bethany uh, to be able to do this healing. He could do it from a distance. Um, nevertheless, uh, might we learn uh, even in this, even from this story and even our own past experiences, Christian, to, to call out to, to Jesus. Let that be our first thing that we do when we experience um, suffering, when we experience uh, hardship, when we experience something like that. Let us run to Jesus and call out to Him and ask others to do so on our behalf. And you would think that Jesus' response to that uh, because of his love for Lazarus, as the sisters made clear, Lord, he whom you love is ill, you would assume that Jesus would drop everything and go and make it to Bethany to be able to heal his friend Lazarus. But note here in verses 4-6 through six that Jesus, is, Jesus stays for God's glory. He stays for God's glory. Jesus responds to both the messengers who bring the message and to his disciples in verse 4 and says, but when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now this must be meaning something other than physical earthly death because in just the first part of the story that we've read, we find out Lazarus dies. And yet Jesus says here, this illness does not lead to death. Jesus is already thinking not just about earthly death, but about eternal death. He he considers more significant eternal death than he does earthly death death. And so he's trying to let his disciples know. He's trying to let these messengers who's traveled this distance know that there is a greater death that we need to be worried about, not only of Lazarus, but also of the disciples and others who will, uh, will experience this uh, or, or will hear these things. And so he says it is for the glory of God. This sickness is for the glory of God. Now, most of us don't like to think that way when we get sick and say, oh, for the glory of God, amen, this, this is going to be used. God, I know. I'm ready for it. I can't wait to see how you're going to use this, Lord. As you're sick, as even a loved one nears death or, or has an accident or, or something like that, no, we don't naturally think that way, but Jesus does. Uh, being God, being man, he naturally thinks that way. But we don't because we are broken and affected by sin. It's not our first nature, if you will. We have a new nature that helps us to think that way, and we have to be trained in that and remind ourselves and need others to help us think that way in the midst of sickness and facing death and that kind of thing. But for Jesus, this was his norm. He knew that he knew the future. He knew what he would do. He knew what was going to happen, and he said that it was happening for the glory of God. Why? So that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Again, he wants to reveal that he is the Son of God. Uh, 
to these people, but they've yet to believe his words. And so he's hoping that even this greatest work would help them then to believe him and to believe his words. And so, since it was for the glory of God, in verse 5, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Um, Something that was known by the sisters is now affirmed by John the Apostle in verse 5. He has both a brotherly love towards that family, but also a godly love towards that family. Two different types of love mentioned there for these individuals. And out of that brotherly and godly love in verse 6, it says, So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Because he loved Lazarus and his family, he stayed. He stayed. He he didn't heal from a distance. He didn't go to the place where they were to heal. He didn't even go to comfort. He stayed for two more days. Why? The only answer I have for you is because in staying and in waiting, would mean that God would receive more honor and more glory. You see, Jesus was about the Father's timetable, not our timetable. And we often pray for God to do things immediately now and and to act, and we think that it would be best for Him to do so right here and right now. But, But if we were given a glimpse of God and His timetable, we might then be able to see how if He healed us immediately or provided for us immediately how we would miss out on growing in that dependence and trust in Him. How uh, it might look more like we healed ourselves and provided for ourselves than God doing it for us. And yet Jesus, being God, has that perspective already. And so He intentionally stays. He intentionally stays back giving time for Lazarus's sickness to run its course, giving time for Lazarus to die, giving time for Mary and Martha to begin to grieve and mourn over him, uh, for people to actually have time to travel out to Bethany from Jerusalem to even grieve over him, that a, a crowd would begin to gather, that all of them might see the the works of God on display. We have to uh, be able to have this kind of, of mindset. We have to be able to step back for a second and let God be God. Yes, pray. Ask for healing. Yes, pray. Uh, ask for God's provision. Yes, pray and ask for God's help. Ask others to pray for you in, in those moments. But to be able at the end of those prayers to be able to say, but not my will. Your will be done. Your timetable, Lord. Your way of healing. Do whatever uh, you do in the way that would give you most honor and most glory. And if we can do that, we'll uh, we'll be looking more like Christ than we had whether we responded in, or prayed a prayer of simply saying, move immediately right here, right now, in this way and demanding that God do so. We can learn from Jesus' response here. We can learn from Him and, and pattern our, our own lives after, after Him here. He stayed two days. It just doesn't seem to make sense. And there's going to be certain situations in your life that you just can't make sense of. Um, in your own health issues, in your own life uh, issues, even in being obedient to the Lord, there's certain things that make sense to God and hindsight will reveal 2020 vision on God's part, but in your vision and your, your timetable, they just don't make sense. Uh, it made me consider Abraham. Uh, in receiving a, being called out by God um, to, to be the, the father of God's people, 
being given a promise that he, even in, in his old age, would receive a child. Uh, and that would be the child of promise. And yet, sometime later, God asked Abraham to sacrifice the child of promise that he had waited years and years and years for. Now, Abraham and I, you know, or I at least, I don't know about Abraham, but I would have at least been like, I don't understand. That doesn't make sense, God. Why would you ask me to do something like that? Why would you, in your will and in your omnipotence and omniscience and, and in your timetable, why would you ask me to kill this son you promised you would give me and you finally gave me? Why would you ask me to do that? And then yet at the very end, <clears throat> uh, right before he... Um, uh, sacrifices Isaac. God stays his hand and pulls him back and says, I know that you believe me. I know that you trust me in these moments. Uh, much like God developing trust in us and at, on his timetable bringing about that result uh, in the end. Um, that's what happened in Abraham's life. But, but we this story of Lazarus and his death and his resuscitation, it does point us forward to consider Jesus' death and Jesus' resurrection, different from Lazarus, for Lazarus would die again one day. And when you consider Abraham's story, God didn't ask Abraham to, in the end, sacrifice his one and only son, but God would. God would, in the end, do something that just didn't make sense in sacrificing his one and only son, knowing that he would pay the penalty for the sin of all of those who would believe and offer life to all who would repent and believe in him and would bring him back to life, would resurrect him from that moment. And in fact, the writer of Hebrews gives us a glimpse of this um, when he writes about Abraham. He said that Abraham had that same understanding, uh, that understanding that I wouldn't have had uh, in that kind of a situation. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17, it says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, he offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. From which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Abraham, way back then, even before Jesus, believed that God was able to resurrect him from the dead, to spend eternity with him forever. And that's the, the view that we have to have even in earthly sickness and in earthly death. That though we may be sick and though we may eventually die, we trust that the Lord is able to resurrect us to be able to enjoy eternal life with Him, which is far more important than an extended earthly life uh, here on, on this earth. Let's keep going. Let's move through to the response of the disciples. We've seen the sisters. We've seen Jesus. Let's look at the disciples then in verse 7. The disciples here are fearful of death. And not fearful of Lazarus' death, fearful of their own death. <laughs> Even though Lazarus is sick and about to die, they're focused on themselves and on Jesus. Verse 7, then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Chapter 10 ended with uh, Jesus in Jerusalem um, and the Jews seeking to stone him and arrest him. And so he escaped from them and went across the Jordan where John the Baptist was baptizing, uh, quite a distance from Jerusalem and Bethany where... Lazarus was dying, and there he, many came to him and were being, uh, believing in him at, at that time. And so the disciples, again, uh, just don't think that what Jesus is choosing to do 
is making sense. Um, waiting um, and now going to the same place or near the same place where they were about to stone you and arrest you. What are you doing, Jesus? Why would you go back there? Why would you go back into where, where they may kill you? And yet, Jesus makes it abundantly clear that he is not controlled um, by death. He's controlled by his Father's will, his Father's timetable. He speaks to them and he answers them in verse 9. Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Jesus has made this point already in speaking that while Jesus is with them here on this earth, it's referred to metaphorically as the daytime. He's the light of the world, in fact, and so as He's in the world, He's shining in the world, and while Jesus is with them, it's daytime. And they're to be about the Father's work while He is with them. Um, and there will be a time when He will be crucified. He uh, will be buried even. He will rise. He will walk the earth for 40 days, but He will ascend to be with God, and they will be sent out in the power of the Holy Spirit to do that work. But while Jesus was with them, it was daytime. And He's saying we need to be about the Father's work during that. Hinting at what Jesus was doing was not just going to visit a sick friend, but was to be doing something even greater than that. And so after saying these things in verse 11, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken them, awaken him. And the disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. Thinking that he was taking a nap because he was under the weather. But Jesus was using this language, again, metaphorically to speak of his death. Jesus maybe sovereignly knowing that, in fact, Lazarus has already died. He's, he's already um, dead. In fact, he could have been dead the day that his sisters sent for him, chronologically, if we considered it. Considered it. But Jesus was speaking of death, he says, and uh, John tells us in verse 13. But they thought that he, was, he meant taking a rest and sleep. And so Jesus told them plainly, and I love that uh, John notes the fact that he's telling them plainly at that point something that the Jews in chapter 10 had asked Jesus to do for them, to speak plainly to them, and Jesus was unwilling to do anymore. But John notes here that Jesus is willing to speak plainly to them, and he says in that moment, Lazarus has died. And he makes another statement that just doesn't seem to make sense. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. I'm glad that I wasn't there when that happened. I'm glad that I wasn't present when Lazarus was sick, lest out of my love for him, um, heal him in that moment. I'm glad that I wasn't there, that things got to such a point that no earthly remedy, no earthly timetable, nothing else would, would explain what's about to happen. I'm glad that I wasn't there because I know what I'm about to do. And when I do it, my hope is that you would believe in me even more. What you believe about me would grow and you would believe in me even more. And so he says at that point, for the second time, uh, where it, earlier in the passage it said that Jesus stayed two days, He urged them to go in verse 7, and now here in verse 15 He says again, but let us go. Go to Him. And so Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go, that we may die with Him. Thomas uh, like his friend Peter and, and co-disciple Peter, uh, in a midst of courage and boldness, 
as Jesus is willing to go back towards Jerusalem to, to be among the people that were about to stone him, says, let's go. I'll go with you, Jesus. I'll be willing to die with you as well. I'll go back to Jerusalem or, or to Bethany near Jerusalem with you. I'll, I'll go and I'll be willing to, to die for you in that moment. Uh, but like Peter, in the end, uh, when Peter says, I too will die with you, all of them uh, run in the opposite direction. Uh, it's, in, it's encouragement here for us as a Christian, um, considering our Christian life, um, uh, as we proceed by, by faith, not to live in such a way to prolong our days with our finances or even make our days easiest with our finances and with our days, but to be willing to live our life um, give of our resources, give of, give of our time to the Father's timetable, to the Father's kingdom. There's so many great pictures of this uh, in so many of our missionaries who have given up house and home, who have given up friends and family, who have given up resources, who have given up retirement even, um, and, and take themselves and their families into more dangerous places of the world to live as Christians and to proclaim the good news of eternal life in Jesus, Jesus Christ. They're great examples uh, of, of, of living like Jesus was here on God's timetable uh, with, with God's vision in mind, not fearing death like the disciples, um, uh, earthly death, that is, but fearing other people's eternal death more than, more than their own. Um, and there are. There are great examples and some of our own friends from this very church who have given their lives to go and do that. Um, but that's not just for the missionaries to live that way. That's for all of us to live that way, that we would not be trapped into thinking that we should simply make our lives safe and secure and protected and comfortable um, in this life to extend our earthly years, not really thinking about uh, the eternal life that is waiting for us or the eternal death that is waiting for many. Let us live like Christ lived on, on the Father's timetable, staying two days here, going there. Uh, let us be seeking the Lord in all of those things, holding fast to the, the promises of God's Word and the eternal life that is stored up for us and holding this life loosely and, and all that the world offers us loosely in that. You see, the disciples were fearful of Jesus' death and their own death and going back to Bethany, and we need to be able to hold that loosely and hold fast that even if we do die, even if we don't have that retirement, even if we don't have that comfortable life that everyone on social media has, we have eternal life. And I'd rather live this little blip of this life for an eternal life that's waiting for us than to live, you know, all that we can for this little blip of life and then it be over and, and face eternal death after that. There's encouragement um, to, to go not the way of the disciples uh, in this moment and to go the way of Christ there. But the story continues in verse 17 where uh, after Jesus uh, goes for our belief, we see Martha lamenting over death. Martha lamenting over death. Now when Jesus came, He found that Lazarus was already, had already been in the tomb four days. And the chronology would be that um, Jesus across the Jordan for the messengers to get there took one day. He waited two days, and then he traveled himself there on the fourth day, taking a day's journey to get there. So for four days, Lazarus has been dead, likely. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, that is, two miles to the east uh, passed and through the Mount of Olives from Jerusalem, but nearby. 
And so in verse 19, John notes that many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. And so there's a crowd that's developed now uh, in Bethany. It's not just Mary and Martha. Uh, Family members are there. Friends are there. People are traveling from Jerusalem and probably some, not just those that want to console and comfort uh, with the truth uh, uh, of God and, and their presence um, there with Mary and Martha, but some who previously wanted to stone and wanted to arrest Jesus. And so when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Her part of the story, running out to Jesus, will come next week. And Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And that's probably true. Jesus would have acted in compassion. He even hints at that himself. I'm glad that I wasn't there. I I, I probably would have done something about it, even though he could have done it at a distance. Uh, She believed that he was able to do something. But she says in verse 22, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, uh, God will give you. Now this isn't, I don't think this is her saying, he died, and if you had been here, you could have healed him, but even now, if you'll just ask, he'll come back to life. I don't think that's what she's asking, because she's already given up hope on that. But it is like uh, us, maybe in, in our accidents, or our health issues, or, or, or someone else facing death, praying God for healing, and, and yet uh, and even watching someone suffer through sickness, uh, even watching someone die here on this earth, at the end of that time or in the midst of that time, being able to say, God, I've prayed and it didn't happen like I wanted, but I know you're still on the throne. You're not less God because you didn't heal in this moment. You're not less God because you didn't save this person's earthly life. You're not less God. You're still on your throne, and you have an eternal life, uh, an eternal resurrection stored up for us that's better than any earthly life that we could have had. It seems like what Martha is, is doing in this lament. She is both sorrowful uh, in the loss of her brother and yet confident in who God is. And the Psalms are full of that kind of example. And so, Christian, if you find yourself in sickness or another person in the midst of suffering or someone facing death or someone who has died, might the Psalms give you the words to pray even when you don't know what to pray? Or might Martha's words help you to, to pray uh, a true and right prayer. God, I know you could have done it, but you chose not to. But you're still on your throne. You are still God. You are still good. And you're still acting for your glory, for my good and my belief and others' salvation. That, in fact, is exactly what Jesus was doing. And she was still, though struggling, still confident in that, it seems, in verse 22. And yet, in verse 23, Jesus speaks. Jesus has stayed for God's glory. Jesus has gone for others' belief. And now Jesus speaks to give life. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Something with a double meaning. Both Jesus alone knowing that he would rise physically and be resuscitated back to life, but also meaning he will be resurrected in the end to spend eternity with God. But Martha only realizes he's talking about one of those, the eternal resurrection, and doesn't even think that he would be hinting at the fact that he would physically rise in just a short bit. And so Martha says, I, Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection 
and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who believes in me shall never die. Here, Jesus gives us the fifth of his emphatic I am statements that John records in, in his gospel. These I am statements saying, I and I alone am the bread of life, or the light of the world, or the door, or the good shepherd. And now here, um, Jesus says, I and I alone am the resurrection and the life. But not only am I that, but I give that. I give resurrection and I give life to all who believe in me. And Jesus even asks her, do you believe this? And what Jesus is really attempting to get across in many of these I am statements is that he's um, not just uh, the gift. Uh, he's not just giving you something. He is also the giver. And, and the question is, is, do you believe that he not only gives this gift, but is himself the giver of the gift? And so you think about these I am statements. Jesus is the bread of life, but he also gives the bread of life to all who eat of him. Jesus is the light of the world, and he gives the light of life to all who follow him, he says in John 8. Jesus is the door of the sheep, and he gives salvation to all who enter him. Jesus is the good shepherd of the sheep, and he lays down his life for all who know him. And here, Jesus is the resurrection of the life, and he gives life to all who believe in him. Jesus is both the giver of the gift, and he is the gift. There is no gift apart from the giver, and that's what Jesus is trying to get at with um, Martha in this moment. I know that you believe Lazarus will receive the gift of resurrection and life in the end, but do you believe I'm the giver of that gift? And here Martha closes with, uh, I've just been impacted this week with uh, just the greatness and simplicity of her confession. We often highlight Peter's confession in Matthew 16 and Mark 8 when Jesus asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? And some say Elijah, and some say John the Baptist. And he looks at them and says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter speaks up and says, you're the Christ. You're the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, yes, and on that confession, I will build my church. Well, it's beautiful to see that Martha has the exact same confession. And it would be that confession of both Peter and the disciples and Martha and Mary and Lazarus and other Christians. It's that confession that Jesus would build his church on. When Jesus says, do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. And I have to ask that same question of you. Do you? Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God who's come into the world to live a perfect life, to die a sinner's death, and to rise from the dead on the third day and to offer eternal life to all who believe? Do you believe that? Or do you believe that this life is what you ought to be living for? Seeking to extend your days and years to be able to live to a hundred as happy and as healthy as possible? Or do you believe that there's something better beyond this life, an eternal life with God and Jesus Christ, made possible through Jesus' death and resurrection? Because if so, if you believe this, it will cause you to live differently right here and right now. It'll cause you to use your money differently. Use your time differently. It'll cause you to treat people differently. It'll cause you to um, 
Wake early and go to bed late seeking the Lord as when he may be found. It will cause you to, to dwell on the Lord and to sing uh, in worship even when you're not gathered with the church. It'll cause you to grieve differently when you face sickness and suffering and accidents. It'll cause you to mourn differently when loved ones die or when you face death. You'll be able to truly sing what we sang just before I stood up, that when you face death and you look across that great horizon, uh, you'll be able to hold fast to that anchor all the way, all the days that the Lord has numbered in His book for you. And so consider this morning, do you believe? If you have believed, gain encouragement and hope from Jesus Himself and His very example. Gain a model this morning to follow Christ as sickness and suffering and death come into your life because they will. Um, They have been a part of history from Genesis 3 all the way to Rev 21. And they will be a part of our life. And so gain encouragement and gain hope and gain a model. But if you have yet to believe in Jesus Christ, let me urge you to do so today. I don't know how many days have been written in the Lord's book for you, but it's not our place to presume that there's another hundred, a hundred days or a hundred years. And so today, as we call it day, while it is still light, believe Jesus Christ. Repent of your sins. Trust Him. Um, Believe that He's the Son of God. Uh, the Christ, the Messiah. And if you can't believe his words, at least believe his works. Not only this work that's been testified for thousands of years, but believe ultimately in his resurrection work, that he died and rose again, so that when you die, you too might rise again to be with him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for revealing your Son, Jesus Christ, in this passage, who is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus, thank you for staying and going and speaking so that we might know more clearly who you are and what you came to accomplish. Father, I pray that you'd help the Christians here this morning who have gathered together to be reminded of the truth that they would live differently in light of you being the resurrection and the life as they face sickness, death themselves, or other loved ones face sickness and death. God, I pray that uh, if there's a person here who has yet to make you uh, their Savior and Lord through faith in Jesus Christ, that today they would. Today they would believe And simply in the quietness of their heart and the quietness even of this room, simply confess as Martha confessed, I believe. I believe, Jesus, you are the Christ, the Savior, the Son of the living God. And to begin to follow you, repenting of their sins, and beginning to grow in that knowledge and faith in you. Lord, have your way in us. We ask and pray in Jesus' name, amen.